It says, I mean, the job of a founder and of a CEO, I think, is to create a vision that others can harness themselves to. We have the privilege of being the front line to these people in their hour of need, and we can either be fabulous to them and help them through it or not. So we architected the business from the ground up to have a different business model and to have social impact built into it at a fundamental level. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm here with my colleague, Oren Younger. Hey, Oren. Hey, Glenn. And we're thrilled to welcome Daniel Schreiber, CEO and co-founder of Lemonade, an AI-powered insurance company that's risen to the top of the industry in just five years. The company went public back in July of 2020 during the pandemic and has been on a rocket ship of growth. Prior to founding Lemonade, Daniel was president of the wireless charger maker PowerMat, and he also founded his first startup 20 years ago. So he's got a wealth of experience and perspective on founding companies, and we're really looking forward to diving into his story today. Daniel, thanks for being here, and welcome to Founder Real Talk. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Aaron. Great to be with you. So let's start a little bit with your background. You were born in, in Britain, raised in Israel, spent many years in Silicon Valley. You're dialing into this episode from Tel Aviv, so very much a global citizen. How did your time in each of those places influence the trajectory of your career and your outlook on on life and on business? That's a great question. And yeah, I I was raised really all over the place. So by the time I was six or seven, I'd lived in England and in Silicon Valley and in Israel. And I kept kind of circulating between those, mainly those three locations throughout my life. I do feel like a citizen of the world. I do. I feel very comfortable in different cultures, in different languages. And I regard that as something of a gift. And I suspect, you know, we don't get to do an A-B test with our life so we can we just know how we are today. We don't know how it would have been had something different played out. But I suspect that the kind of adversity that one has when you encounter as a kid new places, new friends, new languages, and just as you get settled, you move to another place with new new friends, new languages. I imagine that that creates some resilience and other kind of mechanisms for overcoming adversity and broadening horizons. And there's no question, you learn different things studying at King's College London versus serving in an infantry unit in the Israeli Defense Forces versus studying Talmud in Yeshiva versus founding a company in Silicon Valley. So there's a different universes, and I feel reasonably comfortable in all of them. So I'm sure it's informed who I am today. Well, it sounds like if you feel like you've you've dealt with adversity from a young age, having to move around and be agile with your life, that's that's good training for being a founder. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think so. As mentioned in the intro, this is not your first rodeo, and you founded a company before. How have things changed in your approach this time around? Things have changed. I, I'm in my late 40s now, and I founded my first company when I was in my 20s. So I don't know that the fiber of your being changes over 20 years, but experience and scar tissue and everything else accumulates. There's definitely stuff that I've learned and probably stuff that I've forgotten. I will say, say though, that while I, I think overall I've got better, you know, I've, I've developed some pattern recognition, I, I have a better sense of strategy and of people, I think the results have changed in a manner which is totally disproportionate to anything that's changed within me. 
In other words, I think that there's a, a butterfly effect that happens. So lemonade has so far been a tremendous success. In five years, we've gone from a standstill to a public company. And But I don't think that my capabilities now are that different to companies that I led before that weren't resounding successes. I think that the disproportionate outcome relative to any skills that I may have picked up along the way just lead me to conclude that there's a great deal of luck involved in this. So much is serendipity, is timing, is partners, is things coming together. And I've come to think both of my own journey and of human nature in general as being successes and failures, having a lot less to do with our own capabilities than we like to credit. Interesting. That's a humbling comment. <laughs> it is. I'm just listening here. I'm like, okay, I guess it's luck. That's, that's what we got. But we know it's a lot more to it. No, but let's spend a second on that for what it's worth. I do think that results are chaotic and you can do some things right and get wildly disproportionate successes and one step to the left and it might have all looked very, very different. So there is that. There is that chaos or butterfly effect or, or disproportionate effect that, that happened. But even the, the skills, you say, okay, but you must have skills and you, know, you learn these things. Even that, I think a lot of that is stuff that one way or another we're born with. We don't take credit for, whether it's our nature, which we did nothing to deserve, or whether it's our nurture, which we did nothing to deserve. The combination of nature and nurture is everything. <laughs> so we become who we are, and we can't take all that much credit for that. And then we do with it what we can. And I'm not sure how much credit we get to take for that either. <laughs> I don't mean to depress you, Aaron. <laughs> no, 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 you're not depressing. As Glenn mentioned, very humbling answer. And Definitely understand where you're coming from. Moving on. So many Israeli founders come from highly technical background to a point where sometimes it seems like a prerequisite for the Israeli entrepreneur journey. Can you tell our listeners how your background in law and other professional experience helped you become a successful founder? Sure. And while my home is in Israel, I'm not your typical Israeli founder, as kind of the remnants of my English accent will attest. <laughs> When I do speak to young entrepreneurs, particularly in Israel, which I think you're right, has had historically a very strong anchoring in, in technical skills and has outstanding successes rooted in deep technology. I usually challenge young founders by saying to them that I, I think the primary goal of a CEO is actually storytelling. It's not engineering and it's not many other things. I think if you had to, to reduce it down to one thing, it would be storytelling. So, you know, a lot less Excel, a lot more PowerPoint or whatever tools you use, but a lot more about the art of the story rather than the art of the code. And I challenge them. I say to them, you know, I, I'm along with half of humanity. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Winston Churchill and his writings and everything. And it's amazing because he was an orator of singular capabilities. He used to spend an hour in preparation for every minute of a speech that he gave. 30-minute speech, 30 hours of preparation. And he was already best in class. And I say to other founders, how much time do you, did you spend preparing that pitch that you just gave me? And usually it's, <laughs> it doesn't quite match up. And it's not just about oratory skills. It's the substance. I just I mean, the job of a founder and of a CEO, I think, is to create a vision that others can harness themselves to. So, you know, J.K. Rowling invents Hogwarts. Think about the steps she has to go through. The first thing she has to do is, she, in her mind, she has to envisage this thing that doesn't exist. And she has to envisage it in nuanced detail with subtleties and dimensionality, and it has to be deep and colorful. And once she does that, which is a, an act of imagination, 
then she has to communicate it in such a way to people who don't have that imagination, right? She has to make it palpable so that when you read her book, she's not relying on your powers of imagination. She has done the heavy lifting. And for you, it is already a tangible thing. You can feel it, you can touch it, you can think that you almost went there. And I think that CEOs and founders, their job is to lower the reliance on the power of imagination or the VC they're pitching, the employees they're talking to, the customer and everybody else. Because it's always kind of, hey, I want to take you to a different future that doesn't exist yet. And then you have to go and build Hogwarts. <laughs> you have to build a set and you have to make it a reality. So I, I do feel strongly that the kinds of backgrounds that I came from helped me with that. And I think that oftentimes founders that come from a more technological, deep tech background sell themselves short because, yeah, they've got a great tech. But if you don't wrap it and fashion it with a vision and make that vision palpable and then make that palpable vision a reality, then that technology is underserved. Makes sense. Daniel, in all the episodes we've done, that's the first time we've heard CEO and founder as storyteller. And it's a great insight. I think with with all the, the founders with whom we've worked at GGV that have been wildly successful, thinking back on it, they share that trait, that attribute, that ability to tell a great story. And like you say, it's it's not just to customers, it's to employees and would-be employees and the press and partners. And then you've got to go build the Hogwarts as well. So it's a it's double duty, not an easy job. So speaking of like the founders and the founder journey, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the amazing success of Lemonade. You co-founded the company with Shai Winninger, who was the previous founder of Fiverr. So both of you have had a lot of experience and success founding companies. How did you guys meet? What was the spark that led you to decide to work together? And when when did you sort of make the decision, hey, let's go do this lemonade thing? What preparation did you do to go back to the Winston Churchill analogy? What preparation did you guys do to satisfy yourselves that this was the right area to go start a company in? So both Shai and I, independently, we hadn't met yet, were trying to think about kind of what is the next big thing that we want to do? I was in my mid-40s, he was in his early 40s. So we'd harnessed some degree of experience and, and some degree of success and, uh, and not a few failures under our belts. And we wanted to kind of harness those to think about what could we do next. So we were looking for something big, hairy, and audacious for a bu- bunch of reasons, but partly it's just a smart thing to do to leverage all of that. If you just want to create a Pokemon Go, I say just, if you want to create Pokemon Go, anybody in their dorm can do Pokemon Go. If you want to establish a new kind of insurance company, you need some gray hair. You need to be able to raise more money than our seed round was the largest seed round in Sequoia's history, and they've been around for you know 50 years. Insurance is a different kind of thing. You want to stand in front of the New York Department of Financial Services and say, give us a license to be an insurance carrier when you're in your dorm room, that's not something that's going to be very successful. So we were looking to, to set the bar at a level that we may be able to clear, <laughs> maybe not, but that the universe of people that would be trying it would be a bit more limited. And I had a, a kind of proto version of the Lemonade idea. And I went to see a, an old friend of mine, to my mind, one of the best VCs around. That's Michael Eisenberg. And I said to Michael, uh, hey, I just want to run this idea by, I wasn't fundraising or anything. I just, he's one of the, the few people that I wanted to do a sanity check with. And I got two sentences out and he said to me, that sounds like it has legs. And then he said, here are five people that you should go and meet. And one of them was shy. And then we got together and we began, we spent a few months working on what became Lemonade. And 
really, you know, after the IPO, I published a blog post I, I wrote. To, I think it's called Lemonade uh, Da Vinci, and it's about Shai. Shai is the brains of the operation. He's extraordinary. He's by far, and I've met a lot of cool people in, in, in the different continents that I've worked over the decades, but he's by far the most extraordinary professional I've ever worked with, period. And one of the things that's so amazing about him, and, and hence the Da Vinci reference, is there have been a few people, and excuse the melodrama here, but there have been a few people throughout history who can truly merge science and art. And da Vinci did that. He'd see a bird in flight, and he'd think about the physics of heavier-than-air flight and the biology of flapping wings and perspective and light and drawing and art, and it all merged in a way that today we don't train people to do. You either go into the sciences or you go into the arts and you choose your different colleges, different courses. And Chai does that. He can he can talk about, and he does, about the most detailed aspects of a product, the chamfer of the chat dialogue box, the, the hue of the pink, the rhyme and reason of the wording, the and then he'll go from there to the algorithms that drive them and how to build them at scale and how to deliver them securely and how to hire and motivate the people who are going to do all of those things day in, day out, multiple times a day, et cetera. And his ability to seamlessly flow from all these different aspects of what it means to build a technology product is, to, in my experience, without precedent. And it's been hugely, hugely powerful in our own experience in, in Lemonade. Well, that is powerful. What a great co-founder to have someone with that kind of range. Absolutely. What about your decision to go after the insurance industry? You've said that insurance may be the most disruptable industry on the planet. Was that a, a siren call for you guys to go after it? How did you make that assessment? And curious, like, if you could walk us through the process of deciding that insurance, because you, you guys obviously had a lot of capabilities, experiences, could have raised money to go do anything. What drew you to insurance? So insurance wasn't on our screen. It wasn't on the radar. And that proto idea that I mentioned, I stumbled into it by mistake. I, I, after leaving PowerMat, I wanted to kind of broaden my horizons, freshen my perspectives a bit. And I spent a week in Singularity University on the West Coast. And I was primed because I was looking for my next thing. And uh, Peter Diamandes was giving a, a, some kind of talk. I don't remember the question. I don't remember the answer. But some words resonated with me. He spoke about peer-to-peer -peer insurance. Just those, that little snippet stuck with me. And then my brain started, oh, insurance, wow, peer-to-peer. -peer, I started looking into it. I'll come back to that in a second. The funny thing is that months later, after I got together with Shai and we were on, on the way to launch Lemonade, I reached out to Peter and I said to him, hey, Peter, by the way, I'm doing that thing that you said. And we got together for coffee and I explained it to him. And he said, oh, no, you, I was talking about DNA sequencing. He had this whole thing. So I, <laughs> I, like, I like to think that... The, <laughs> The genesis of Lemonade is one big misunderstanding. <laughs> <laughs> but once we were triggered by that, what we found in insurance was kind of awesome. And it was one of these things where, wow, how do we not ever see it? Because insurance is hiding in plain sight. First is it's stunningly big. 100% household penetration. 11% of GDP in the United States is insurance. 11%. $5 trillion worldwide. This is as close to unlimited as it gets. You look at some of the biggest insurance companies in the world and you see companies, AXA and others, who have been around for 200 years, Lloyd's over 300 years. AXA does over $100 billion a year and they've been around for centuries. And here's the kicker, they've got 4% market share. And the idea that you can be a Fortune 50 company and have 4% market share just blew our mind. Like, wow, this is huge. That was one. 
Then the second thing that was so striking is it's entirely unchanged. 12% of the Fortune 100, 12 companies out of the Fortune 100 are insurance companies. The average age is 125. They were founded during the era of the horse-drawn carriage. There was no air conditioning or antibiotics or an entirely different world when they were founded. And I don't want to say that they're not... They haven't changed, but they haven't changed that much. It's basically (laughs) the same stuff. So huge and unchanged. And then the final thing for us was unloved. Insurance companies score slightly below politicians in terms of the level of trust that they engender. And people love to hate their insurance company. In the Urban Dictionary, the definition of the word insurance is companies that promise to pay later, make promises to pay later that are never fulfilled. And you, you see that this trifecta of huge, unchanged, and unloved, you tell me as VCs, when those three, you hit it's ding, ding, ding. Wow, where have, we, where have we been? So then we did something surprising, perhaps, because we didn't know anything about insurance. And what we should have done is started swatting up about insurance. You want to take on insurance, you better do this, the hard work. And consciously, we did the opposite. We took kind of a WeWork-style office space, a room, and we started whiteboarding out what kind of insurance company we'd want to build. And we didn't even go into Wikipedia and type in the word insurance. And the thinking was that when you know something, it's hard to rethink it. You like to think that you can do first principles thinking, but it's so much easier to do first principles thinking when you have no other principles constraining you. And so what we did is we said, look, we've got high school probability theory. We've got 20 years in consumer-centric innovation, sharing economy, digital distribution, etc., Let's just use what we know and what we know as consumers of insurance and think through what kind of insurance company we would like. Why do we not trust insurance companies? And we sketched all of that out over a couple of months, and we emerged from that room with an early version, which bears more than a passing resemblance to Lemonade today, but an early kind of roadmap of what we thought was right to develop. Fascinating. Given that the incumbents have uh, quite a bit of years under their belt, you're obviously very different in that you were born digital. How have you used being a born digital, digital first type company to your advantage in a market that was so entrenched? I think in, in obvious ways and in less obvious ways. So the, the obvious ways are 96% or something like that of homeowners insurance policies in America are sold through a broker. So you're insuring your home, you're speaking to a human. As soon as you cut that out and you turn it into a chatbot and she's called Maya and she's kind of impish and cheeky and playful and by the way, she asks you far fewer questions than a broker would because she uses data sets to compensate for that. And the median time to buy a policy goes down to 90 seconds. Think of Geico's boast, 15 minutes can save you 15%. And then take those 15 minutes, cut them by a factor of 90% down to 90 seconds. And that's transformative. I read somewhere that the median time to get a cup of coffee at Starbucks is three minutes. So you could get two of those by the time you insured your home. So the whole experience is transformed. You know, that is just not a comparable experience to going to the main street and, and talking to a broker. And then it becomes even more disruptive or, or different when you make a claim and you chat to a chatbot and he's called Jim and he asks you a few questions. And then in about a third of cases, he pays it on the spot without any human intervention. And it takes about three seconds, three seconds to get the money wired to your bank account. And like, okay, I'm, you know, once you've done that, you're never going back. (laughs) So there's the obvious ways. I think actually the bigger challenge that we're posing to the industry is in the the 90% of the iceberg that's submerged that you don't see. 
let's spend a second on that. Insurance and statistics, insurance and probability theory have co-evolved since the 1600s. So Lloyds of London came into being in the mid to late 1600s. That is also when Pascal and Fermat formulated the law, the, the probability theory, and when Jacob Bernoulli came up with the law of large numbers. So you had this amazing time, the scientific revolution, which gave birth to statistics and probability and also gave birth to the modern insurance companies, many of whom survive to this day. And up until fairly recently, 30 years ago, if I asked you, and certainly 300 years ago, but even 30 years ago, if I said to you, hey, who are the bastions of the world's data? Where are the best statisticians in the world to be found? You'd have said insurance companies. And if I asked you that question today, it wouldn't cross your mind to say insurance companies. You'll rattle off a bunch of Silicon Valley brands. And that is really the, the secular shift. That is the systemic threat to the entire incumbency within insurance is that they have lost supremacy over the main factor of production in insurance, which is statistics and data. And think about this. You know, you guys get pitched all different stuff and everybody talks about AI and big data and machine learning. And if I'm pitching to you some food delivery app, I'll talk to you about how machine learning optimizes my routes and gets the, the, you know, the, the salmon pate that I'm delivering, you know, whatever it is, how it inventory management and route management and employee management. And they're right. It does transform that business. But at the end of the day, the product that's being delivered is a piece of tuna. If you think about insurance and you strip away the delivery and the distribution and the marketing and all that stuff, all of which can be digitized, what am I delivering? What is my equivalent of tuna? It's a probability theory. The core product of insurance is probability, is an algorithm. And as much as other industries are susceptible to disruption by machine learning and big data, I put it to you that insurance is even more so because it's not just all the things around the product. It's the product itself. So a little bit more than just uh, air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Let's talk team. Lemonade now has offices in New York City, Scottsdale, Arizona, Tel Aviv, and most recently Amsterdam. How have you approached hiring globally and how have you maintained Lemonade's culture across geos and different time zones? Well, it's definitely always a challenge. Now in COVID, it's paying dividends because our team was born international. The day we founded, we had six people. Three of them were in New York. Three of them were in Tel Aviv. So we've been on Slack and Zoom and all those tools literally since the very first day of the company. So there was no big shock when suddenly everybody had to work from home. We were set up for that organically. And I think actually a lot of the challenges that we face in terms of cultural diversity are less along geographic lines and more along professional lines. So when you try to build a company that is an insurance company and definitely needs to have insurance professionals, people who grew up in insurance, but they need to cut off the branch on which they set up until very recently, that creates real challenges. What kind of, how do you maintain the tech-centric, fail-fast and rapid iteration mentality when you're grafting it into an industry which really is incredibly resistant to those kinds of transformations? And I remember early on when we were advertising for the first insurance professionals that we needed, I literally put in the job description, one of the requirements was midlife crisis. (laughs) (laughs) I said, you know, if you're happy in the corner office of a large insurance company, don't apply. We won't be attractive to you and you won't be attractive to us. We need somebody who's feeling like, what the hell am I doing in my life with my life here? And those, those kind of people can apply. And just to give you a sense, I remember early on when we announced our first insurance executives who joined us, 
and they were they were and are incredibly accomplished people you know really rock stars and TechCrunch reported on it and they named the names of the hires and then they kind of had to explain it to the tech readership and they they said the following those names may may not mean much to the tech community but these guys are like the Satya Nadellas and Eric Schmitz of the insurance industry and I was so chuffed. And the next day I brought it in and I got the insurance guys around. And I said, guys, listen, this is what they said about you guys. And they all kind of nodded along. And then they said to me, Who, who's Satya Nadella? <laughs> and then you realize the challenges that you have in terms of meshing the, the different cultures. Yeah. <laughs> That's an awesome story. One other thing we wanted to ask you about is you clearly built the company from ground up with first principles to delight the customer. You also have certified Lemonade as a B Corp as a, and a mission-driven company. Curious, could you elaborate on why you decided to do that and how it's impacted the business and the people who work for the business? Sure. So that that first meeting that I had with Shai five plus years ago, and we were sharing ideas about what we wanted to do next. One of them was we wanted to do something meaningful. We, we want to be successful. We want the shares to be worth a lot and all of that, but we wanted to layer on top of it also something that would satisfy kind of other aspects of our being, you know, higher up the Maslow scale. And so we decided to, at first blush, insurance didn't fit the bill. I have to tell you, in retrospect, we were wrong. Insurance done right absolutely fits the bill. At a mathematical level, insurance is about a community of people pooling resources to help their weakest members in their hour of need. That is almost a dictionary definition of a social good. It couldn't be further removed from our perception of insurance. But when you do it right, and I say this to our team a lot, Somebody's just been burglarized. Their, their home has just burnt to the ground in one of the wildfires. They're being sued by their neighbor and they're worried that they're going to go bankrupt. Their, their pet has been diagnosed with cancer and they can't afford the treatment. We have the privilege of being the front line to these people in their hour of need. And we can either be fabulous to them and help them through it or not. So I actually think that it is inherently a good when, when done right. But Beyond that, we wanted to do, as I say, do something a bit more meaningful, but also to solve, frankly, what we saw as um, one of the biggest challenges that insurance faces. So when we locked ourselves in that room for two months and said, why do we hate insurance? Our answer ultimately was, and we worked with Nobel laureates in in game theory, Nobel laureates in in behavioral economics. We really reached out and tried to understand this a lot. We said that the problem isn't the players, it's the game. There is something in the design of the insurance game that brings out the devil in us. We're all willing to embellish our claims in a way that we otherwise wouldn't. And you know, we're law-abiding in other aspects of our lives. When it comes to insurance, we will cheat the insurance company and tell the story over dinner. And at the risk of oversimplifying, we decided that the, the real thing that brought the devil out in us was the perception of misaligned interests. And when you dig into it, you realize that insurance companies actually, Dan Ariely joined us as a chief behavioral officer, and he wrote a book about the honest truth about dishonesty. And he concluded that if you wanted to design a system to bring out the worst in terms of human behavior, it would look a lot like a modern insurance company. It, it, has, <laughs> it really does everything that the research and social sciences tell us you shouldn't do. Asymmetry of information, win-lose value propositions. And just think it through. I take your premiums month in, month out. Now make a claim. Well, the asymmetry of power is clear. I understand the policy you don't, etc. And it is in my financial incentive to, to say no. And for us, the B Corp and the give back and the charitable dimension was a way of solving for that. It was a way of of creating a Ulysses contract where we tie our hands and we say, listen, we wanted to make a certain amount of money, in our case, a 25% fee. Pay us a buck. Know now that 25 cents on the dollar is going to be retained by us. 
We're going to use the remaining 75 cents to pay your claims. Now, what happens if there's money left over or if there's not enough money? Well, if there's not enough money, we buy reinsurance and the reinsurers have a bad year, not us. So if we pay your claim, we're not going to eat into our profits this year. What happens if it's a good year and there's money left over? Do we grab that? In which case we regain that incentive to deny your claim or to delay your claim. We said, no, that money is exactly the money that poisons the well. We're not going to throw it into the sea. Let's give it to a charity. And that changes everything. Suddenly, I don't have an incentive to deny your claim. And if I don't, then the incentive flips. And I want the NPS and the referral and your delight. And I want you to be a customer for life. So I'm going to pay that claim in three seconds if I possibly can. And your incentives change as well, because you may have felt okay embellishing your claim when you were sticking it to the man, to the nameless, faceless behemoth with whom you have a conflicted relationship. But when we remind you, as we do, that if you embellish your claim, you're hurting your church, the soup kitchen you volunteer at on Sundays, the, whatever charity you chose when you joined, that flips a switch in your mind as well, and you might behave differently. So we architected the business from the ground up to have a different business model and to have social impact built into it at a fundamental level. And we give back a lot of money. We gave back over a million dollars this last year. It's, it's a big part of what we do. It's a huge, we call it give back day, and it's a huge cause for celebration. But we think of it not as altruism in the purest sense of the word, but as enlightened self-interest, building a company that will be all the more valuable for this. This is not at the expense of shareholder value. This is how you build shareholder value by aligning interest, delighting consumers, etc. That's awesome. That's really fantastic. Daniel, we, we can't gloss over the fact that Lemonade went public earlier this year amidst a global pandemic. What was the experience like and why did you decide to go public as early as you did? The experience was spectacular, bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> we had our kickoff session. We, we met with the bankers in late 2019. We said, okay, you know what? We'll have the org meeting, which is the kickoff meeting. We set a date sometime in March with a view to going public after Q2. When March came round, it was the stock markets had all just fallen 30 points. It was absolutely crazy. And we got together because it was on the calendar. And I remember saying to the guys, you know, we said we're meeting, so we're going through the motions, but obviously we're not going to IPO this year. You know, you know, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> but let's do it anyway. Let's get the S1 ready because sooner or later, things will change. In retrospect, um, that day, I think it was the 23rd of March, was the low point of the stock market. And the next day, the rally began, and we had it was followed by the best 50 days that the stock market has ever seen in its history, I think. So it was just whiplash. And suddenly, an IPO didn't seem so nuts, notwithstanding everything. And we, in fact, pulled it in. We're like, okay, make hay while the sun is shining. Let, let's do this thing. So that's kind of how it played out in the middle of the pandemic. I think the more interesting thing is we were in market for, for less than four years when we went public. Almost to the day, it was the fifth year of our founding. And that's unusual, but it wasn't always unusual. I took a look. Back in 1999, the average age of a company, a tech company going public was four. And you think back to some of the iconic brands, the, the Microsofts, the Apples, the Amazons, and the, not that uh, we are any of those companies, but they went public at an age and stage that was not that different to where we were at. And then 10 years after 1999, the average age went from four to 14 and we started entering the you know, SoftBank and other huge funds that could write multi-billion dollar checks. And suddenly you could continue growing in the private markets. There was no need to go public as the earlier generations had to. 
And then we looked at the class of 2019. And I don't want to name names, but 2019 was expected to be a spectacular IPO year. And it really disappointed. In fact, it was in terms of the returns of IPOs, they underperformed the rest of the market in a way not seen since 1995. It was incredible. And we took a look at those companies. We had a few spectacular debacles as well, you know, the WeWorks, et cetera. And we said, is it really good staying private for all that long? You end up doing all of your growth on VC money. By the time you heave yourself onto the public markets, they don't appreciate it. They want to invest in a growth story. They want to invest in, they want an IPO to be a small proportion of what the company might one day be worth, not where it's peaking. So they didn't reward it. And I also think that it didn't really build such resilient businesses. You started seeing a lot of bro culture, a lot of ethical violations, a lot of things that we as an industry should not be proud of. And I can't help feeling that part of that is because of the, the bubbles that we created. You know, As a parent, you think about stuff like extended adolescence, where we can sometimes be so protective of our kids that they never grow up. And actually, the good thing to do for them is to push them out into the world and let them get the get the resilience that comes from contending with adversity. And I think the same thing applies to tech companies. I think we've created extended adolescence where people can remain juvenile for far too long. Companies can remain juvenile for far too long. So we wanted, we want to build a company that will endure for a long time. Insurance companies, as I said earlier, can last for centuries. They can be very big. And if we were optimizing for, oh, the next few quarters, you would never go public. But if the question they ask is a different question, which is, what is the right platform upon which to build for the next 20 years? The answer isn't VCs. It's going to be the public markets. And the stock will go up and down, and that's just fine. But that is the kind of thinking that led us to, to do what we did. And you've said you want to check the stock every every few years, <laughs> whereas most people, when they go public, start checking the stock every few minutes. How are you imbuing the, your own company with that culture of being very long-term and not getting caught up in the minute-to-minute -minute now that you're public? It's been a big relief because that was the big concern. And we spoke to ourselves, we spoke to the team, we wrote to the team, showed them how, I remember producing all these graphs of Google and Facebook and, and all these companies and showing that if you could choose to join at day one and treat an IPO as an exit or join at an exit at the IPO and stay to today, you'd have made so much more money treating the IPO as a point to enter, not a point to exit. Oh, that's a great exercise to do. Yeah. So we were really trying to, to make that case that we've got all of our growth ahead of us and explain why we're going public and, and give the rationale that we, that we gave. And I have to tell you, I've been so pleasantly surprised that it's really playing out. We do not talk about being public. We do not talk about our stock price. It doesn't come out. All of the decisions that come day to day, it's never mentioned. And I, I think long may it last, but it really just has been something that happened and it's happened in the background, but it's not changed the essence of the company and, and I hope it won't. Very cool. All right, Daniel, it's that time of the episode where we're going to put you on the hot seat. We're going to ask a couple of questions and just, uh, just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. What's a book you'd recommend to founders that you think is worth reading? So the book that influenced me all those years ago when I founded my first company, which was in the late 90s, was The Silicon Valley Way. And I found it just a really helpful textbook. It's been updated with a second edition, but I think still it forces you to just practically think through. And if you're a first-time founder and not deeply immersed in the in the industry, it's a really helpful place to start. For, for people who are more experienced and 
looking to broaden the horizons and think about things a bit differently. There's a whole slew of books that do that. One that I read recently that I really liked was Utopia for Realists by a Dutchman by the name of uh, Ratka Bregman. And I really enjoyed that book as well. I'd recommend that for reading in general as well. Great, thanks. If you could invite any historical figure to dinner, who would it be? And it cannot be Churchill, given that it's going to take <laughs> too long to prep for that. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I think for me, it would be um, Maimonides. So not a household name. Maimonides was a towering figure of Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages, spent most of his adult life in Egypt, actually. And he was really imbued in Aristotelian philosophy, but tried to kind of bring it into, into his era. And it's incredible how contemporary he still seems a thousand years after his writings. But he was such a first principles thinker. He pursued truth no matter what and would take truth from any source. And I think was just very thoughtful about a lot of things. That, and I just, it'd be awesome to have dinner with him. <laughs> well, speaking of dinner, last question for you. Fish and chips or falafel? Well, that's an easy one for me. It would be falafel. And the reason it's easy for me is not because I enjoy fish and chips any less than falafel, but I'm a strict vegetarian. Okay. Oh, we so, made that. Yeah, that's all good. Um, so I do like f falafel. It's also reasonably healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so falafel it is. When you have Maimonides over for dinner and Orin and I are in Israel next, we're going to come, we're going to bring some falafel, maybe from Hakosem. Well, Daniel, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing with us some about your background and the story of Lemonade, the way that you have completely rethought this industry from the ground up and built a company that obviously is doing well, but also doing well, doing good, and just has done things so uniquely different. It's been really uh, exhilarating to hear about. And I know our uh, audience is going to love, love hearing the story of Lemonade and we'll take lots of lessons from it. So thanks so much for joining us and uh, sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Aaron. Thank Good to talk to you. Thanks. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.